0: In 2020, events have again shone a light on inequalities across the globe, and Australia is not an exception. 20 years on from the reconciliation walks of the year 2000, this nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to the Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its regions. I'm Martin Pierce. Policy Forum Pod is presented by policyforum.net and we are based at Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University. If you're keen to earn a master's degree from the Asia-Pacific's leading graduate policy school, then it's never too early to scout out your degree options. From health to economics, we've got a wide range of different specialisations and if doing a whole degree doesn't sound right for you just now, we also offer a variety of shorter programmes to help you reach train or upskill in a public policy career. You can find out all about them at crawford.anu.edu.au forward slash study. Now, according to a recent report, an estimated 3.8% million people around the world are using social media. From politics to personal use, platforms like Facebook, Twitter and Instagram have given everyone with internet access the ability to connect with friends and family across the world in real time and to access news at any point during the day and a place to share uh, thoughts and feelings. And they're all things that most of us appreciate these days, particularly when we're confined to our countries or even our homes during the global COVID-19 pandemic. However, all of us that use social media are aware that there can be some downsides to these platforms. You could call it people disregarding social norms and etiquette, or you could say that, you know, people online will say things that they would never say to your face. Plus, these sites, for all of their benefits, also bring a greater risk of being exposed to disinformation or even violent content. And even in the most stable democracies around the world, there's mounting concern that nefarious actors using these platforms may be gaining traction in their efforts to undermine political and social institutions. In 2018, Australia and the other members of the Grand Committee on Disinformation signed a document on the principles of law governing the internet. The declaration cemented a commitment to the principles of transparency, accountability and the protection of representative democracy in regards to the internet. Yet social media platforms have remained spaces where people or even fake accounts and bots can spread disinformation widely and easily, and platforms where sexism, misogyny and racism are all still thriving. So on this episode, we want to ask, what can policymakers and indeed social media providers themselves do to make social media platforms safer, more reliable and more respectful. And I've got a fantastic panel with me to discuss some of these issues. First of all, uh, Dr. Jen Hunt is a lecturer at the National Security College here at Crawford School. Hello, Jen. Hello. Joining us remotely is Dr. Jenny Davis. Jenny is a senior lecturer at the ANU School of Sociology. Hello, Jenny. Hello. It's going to be very confusing having a Jen and a Jenny. Um, And and a welcome back, indeed, to Yun Jiang. Yun is a researcher at the ANU Australian Centre for China in the World, and she's also editor of the China Story blog. Hello, Yun. Hello. It's wonderful to have you all here. So all three of you are relatively active on social media, particularly on Twitter. So before we get into the nitty-gritty of this topic... Can I get an impression from all three of you on what you feel about the tone used on some of these platforms, as well as the amount of disinformation that goes around? Perhaps, Jen, if we start with you.
2: Uh, sure. So uh, I think the the three main portals that I think of in this space about disinformation, misinformation, perhaps even conspiracy theories, um, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube feature prominently. Um and I think if we start to think of these spaces as the global commons, uh, sort of alternative facts uh, and disinformation count as pollution. So I think we're looking at an environment in which we are all either in or we are um, uh, influenced by people who are, right? So it's our it's our family members and our friends and our politicians that are getting information from these spaces and using that to make decisions.
0: Yin, what about you? What's your sense of the the tone around social media?
2: I definitely
3: get a sense that um, people often say things that they would not say to your face. Um, So perhaps a bit more insulting, um, a bit more direct, a bit less polite. Um, Maybe there is a sense that because they're, especially for accounts that's um, anonymous, there's a sense that, oh, well, I am um, hiding behind a computer keyboard. I can say whatever I like. Um, So the result of that is a less polite social media environment.
0: We've all experienced those keyboard warriors. What about you, Jenny? What's your sense?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it varies quite dramatically based on platform. And I think one of the features that seems to matter the most is whether people are interacting with those who are in their direct social networks, so people they know and who they'll see at work and family gatherings and uh, social events, or whether they're interacting with strangers. And I think when people are interacting with strangers, which happens, for instance, on YouTube, um, and sometimes on Twitter, sometimes on Instagram, less so on somewhere like Facebook, uh, when interacting with strangers, the discourse can devolve more quickly. (laughs) Um, When people are interacting with, with those who they know and they'll have to see again, I think there is that sort of sense of maintaining the relationship Um, and maintaining decorum in a way that can be sustainable in interactions moving forward. And I also think that anonymity, as as the others have talked about, is a big issue. So something somewhere like Reddit, um, where not only it's sort of more normative to be sort of blunt, direct, um, vitriolic, uh, I think part of that is facilitated by the fact that on somewhere like Reddit, your user handle can be entirely disconnected from who you are in the other segments of your life. And so how you behave and speak there won't come with you.
3: I actually think in some degree, um, there's an incentive on social media to be more extreme. Um, because, you know, um, a lot of people on social media, what promptsman to write is, you know, getting likes or shares. And the more extreme views you have on a social media platform, often the more likely you'll get likes and shares.
1: Yeah. Can I just build on that's a, I think such a great point in that the, the algorithms themselves um, preference often incendiary content. And there's also been research that shows that incendiary content spreads more quickly and widely than Uh, So socially acceptable content. Um, So you're absolutely right. There is an incentive structure. And I'm actually working on a research project right now with um, Tim Graham from Queensland University of Technology. And one of the things we're looking at is what happens when content gets downvoted on Reddit. And what happens is when content gets downvoted on Reddit, it also generates a whole lot more engagement. So when people disagree when you say something that people dislike then you're sort of also rewarded with attention so there's this interesting dynamic going there between incendiary speech Dissent and also the reward of engagement.
0: Well, lots to unpick there, and and some of which I want to come back to a little later in the podcast. But you, let me put this question to you: You engage in social media around, particularly around issues to do with China. Mm-hmm. What's been your experience wading into particularly contentious issues like that, even when you're armed with you know facts and evidence?
3: Well, I think it's a little bit. Different in that, um, I am a Chinese Australian. Um, I have a very distinctively Chinese name and, uh, I have my face, <laughs> I guess, um, displayed on the internet. So, um, so people instinctively, um, I guess link me to, uh, China even though I am Australian. Um, so when I talk about a lot of things, um, either China-related re- or even talk about things that's about Australia, um, there seems to be almost um, a reaction that, what about China? You know, um, even when I talk about Australia, people will ask, what about China? China is worse, um, which is, seems to be very odd to me. And f- from my perspective, I think the reaction I get will be very, very different. You know, if I had um, a more Anglo name, if I was or if I even if I was a man, I think um, there is also a sense that uh, people do. I think on social media, people do more pick on women as well. Um so I often wonder, you know, what if I had an alternative account where I was a man and with an Anglo name, I'm sure the reception would be quite different.
0: Do you think you could get a a research project up to look into that perhaps?
3: Oh, well, I think I I probably have to write a ethics um for that, wouldn't I? <laughs>
0: <laughs> and interesting that you drew attention to that sort of uh, what whataboutism, the whataboutery, which is so prevalent on the internet.
3: Well, the the problem with um, social media platform, for example, with Twitter, is um, some pe- when people look at um, one of your tweets, they only look at your tweet in that one thing. They don't see the other things you have written. So, for example, if I have written something that is um, – more critical of Australia. And I have written something that's more critical of China. But the people that see my tweets are critical of Australia says, well, why don't you criticise China? Even though, you know, I have done that, but they don't see it.
0: Now, Jenny mentioned there about the algorithms used by social media companies. And, you know, they they are designed to maximise engagement on posts. Uh, but they can also promote extreme content. Uh, the Institute for Strategic Dialogue in the UK found that typing the word Holocaust into Facebook, the Facebook search function brought up suggestions for Holocaust denial pages. Perhaps if I put this to you, Jen – are governments doing enough to push social media platforms to ban hate speech?
2: I'm not sure we're aware of everything that governments are doing on this front to try to collaborate together. But I will say that example is, is very poignant. I remember um, the top search result after the US election in 2016 gave the wrong tally between Trump and Hillary Clinton, claiming that Clinton won the popular vote. And this was the top search result in Google. And it was a random WordPress blog no credibility to speak of. Um, but I still have people quote that back to me as fact because they saw it on Google and it was the number one search result. So you're absolutely right. These algorithms are primed for engagement, not accuracy. Um, and BS is highly engaging.
3: Well um I I know the government has done quite a lot in taking down terrorist content um now with the online hate speech um that's perhaps a bit different because there's a lot of issues around freedom of speech so pro- probably there's a lot of a bit more not um a bit more reluctance to act and a bit of um a more Um, wariness about what to do about it.
2: But it's true. It shows they do have the tools, right? If you Mm. fly an ISIS flag on your Facebook profile, it is automatically taken down. There is no human decision. There is no delay uh, in executing that. And so I think if we can... We can deploy these same tools. For instance, um, you might know that the FBI declared certain conspiracy theory groups a domestic terror threat in 2019 and specifically mentioned QAnon, which is the largest um, growing online conspiracy theorist community. And so with these sorts of designations, then law enforcement does have more of a mandate to step in and work more closely with these platforms to enact that.
0: Jenny, there was a study by researchers at Birmingham City University, which collected hundreds of tweets posted in response to the terrible 2019 terrorist attack in Christchurch in New Zealand and many of those people tweeting openly declared their hate for Muslims and uh, diminished the loss of lives at the attacks by comparing those deaths caused by Islamic extremists. Why do, pe- do why do some people on the internet feel safe to express such extreme views?
1: Yeah, well, I think that's a really important question. Um, I think people feel free to express those views because they have them and because mainstream internet platforms give them a voice to do so. And so I think there's one, there's really interesting debate that goes on about whether or not internet platforms, mainstream platforms, social media platforms should or should not uh, regulate speech. And on the one side of the debate, you have sort of the free speech advocates who say we should be able to express ourselves and people should be able to express themselves, even if their views are egregious. And the other side of that debate says, well, when people express uh, violence and vitriol against particular groups, then that becomes dangerous for the groups at whom the violence and vitriol is aimed. And I think one thing that kind of Gets lost in in the technical and policy uh, analysis, which is all sort of very direct on what people are doing and to what effect. Is the the role of norms and how social media policy shapes norms? I guess I should say it's not just that people are saying these things, but then it's it's framed as normative because when it's not taken down. So it doesn't just reflect what some extremist people feel, but normalizes that uh, ideology and normalizes the expression of that ideology, making the world more dangerous and less welcoming to marginalized groups. Where in contrast, if social media companies had hard policies against that kind of hate hate speech and violence, it would not only reduce the the number of people saying it, but it would also signal at a social level that that kind of speech and treatment of marginalized groups was unacceptable.
2: So I think it's important to know when we talk about people who are making these comments it's not just random people it's people of political influence taking the christchurch example there was an australian politician that said exactly the same thing that basically blamed um muslim immigration for this terrible massacre and so i think what what people see are those elite cues and they follow that and they also see twitter and these platforms not adhering to their own terms of service about such language
0: so i mean Jenny, Jen previously mentioned that if you've put an ISIS flag onto your onto your profile, that will get flagged and taken down straight away. And social media companies cop a lot of flack all around the world for allowing uh, sort of extreme views and hate speech onto their platforms. Why don't they move quicker to actually respond uh, respond to this? Why do they appear so sluggish?
1: Well, I think there are a few reasons. I think, uh, I think one – main reason is is a practical one and i think that has to do with technical capacity and staffing capacity so it's not just that they have to make decisions which are difficult about what kinds of expressions they'll deem acceptable and unacceptable which is i mean that's a really complex decision to make right so like is a, is a confederate flag acceptable well that's been a fight you know ongoing for years so uh, are women breastfeeding an acceptable image on Facebook. That's been a debate going on for years. So the decisions themselves are really challenging. But then even once they're made, the scale at which they have to be enforced is immense. So you can have once if you have hard and fast rules about a few things, then those things can be automated um, with, you know, sort of a lot of technical resources. But the trouble is that that images and text and expressions are constantly changing and they're nuanced and they're not presented in the same way. So you really can't just sort of automate very many things. A lot of moderation decisions require that human lens who can understand the cultural context and who can understand the nuance and who can understand that things said in 10 different ways are actually saying the same thing. And that's a huge staffing job and a huge training job and a huge retraining job each time new uh, policy decisions emerge. And so it's not surprising at all that they're sluggish and inconsistent and frustrating from a user perspective when we sort of expect it to be seamless and sharp.
3: We can look at an example from the other end of the extreme, which is um, WeChat. WeChat is... um, Heavily censored. Um, and it does use, uh, a lot of, uh, labor in, um, censoring and it has to keep adapting, um, to its censorship. Um, because, you know, um, Chinese internet, um, people on the internet, they are, they are quite, um, creative. They often use, you know, uh, words, um, substituting words. So that all creates all kinds of challenges for censors. And, um, but WeChat has an incentive to do that because, uh, if it doesn't do that, then the Chinese government will, You know, be very angry at it and possibly shut it down. Um, so I think the, the question is, you know, one, what advantages and disadvantages the social media companies get out of, um, either censoring, uh, content or moderating content and, um, uh, to what, ins- I guess, it's just what incentives they have for doing that.
0: Now, I want to take a break shortly, but before we do, I just want to touch on the issue of bots and disinformation and, and come to you with this, Jen. Uh, there was a study by the University of Oxford in 2019 that found evidence of organised social media campaigns which have taken place in 70 countries uh, which was up from 48 countries in 2018 and 28 countries in 2017. So it's, it's obviously becoming much more commonplace. Can you tell us briefly what a bot is and how big of a role they are actually playing in spreading disinformation, particularly around sort of destabilizing institutions and democracies?
2: There are lots of different kinds of bots, not all of them nefarious. Some of them are quite helpful. Um, but the bots we're talking about are about uh, disinformation and deployed by uh, adversaries as a tool in their arsenal, right, to find in this information space. So they can amplify debate. They can choose both sides of a controversy to stir up um, dissension and division. Um, and they can create the perception that a topic or a perspective on that topic is more popular than it actually is. So disrupting democratic debate, um, disrupting that d- decision making process um, we have now five volumes of uh from the U.S. Senate Intelligence Committee on the use of bots and trolls um, and, and other sorts of Russian disinformation in the U.S. election in 2016, the last report just came out yesterday. So, Volume Two is all about social media. In case you're looking for tactics to undermine fellow democracies, there's a lot. There's a toolkit there, um, but it talks about this role in um, using it using it as a force, uh, sort of a force multiplier for for invasion of a discourse and it means that they're automated and they can be controlled by a single person that's you know could have thousands of bots or trolls which tend to be real people um even if they're recycled among multiple users um the sort of goad and um, create havoc and chaos in the online spaces.
0: Okay. And now before we go to a break, before we started recording, Jen, you were telling us about a new paper that you've written uh, around conspiracy theories and COVID. And I just want to touch on that briefly. What did you actually uh, research and what did you find?
2: Sure. So this was a report for the Health Security Network, which is Australia-based. And this is a report on um, conspiracy theories in the post-truth age, specifically using COVID-19 um, so just as we're talking about alternative facts, misinformation, and conspiracies sort of polluting that information global commons, this impacts on a nation's ability to, to keep their people safe. So there's lots of conspiracy theories about the origin of COVID-19, the severity, whether it's a hoax or the uh, mortality is overblown, as well as around the mitigation efforts themselves and their efficacy or their potential, uh, you know, nefarious origins um, Bill Gates gets a mention. And you can see that these conspiracy theories are sort of promulgated and hatched online, um, whether it's through Reddit or a random, um, you know, online discussion board. But then they go viral, almost like the COVID-19 itself. And they move through the same sort of vectors and super spreaders and politicians And so this is having real world consequences. Um, it's, It's impacting the ability of people to keep themselves and their neighbors safe when they believe these conspiracy theories.
0: Very interesting stuff. Well, look, join us for more in part two when we'll carry on this really interesting discussion. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. Okay, welcome back. I'm still here with Jen, Jenny and Yun. Now I'd like to dig a little deeper into uh, how we go about tackling some of the hate speech and disinformation we see online. Jen, before the break we touched on the role of bots in spreading disinformation and trolls and one argument that we sometimes hear put forward is that social media platforms should ensure that accounts are actually linked to real people. Could that be done and would it help?
2: I would have some reservations about, about that from, um, sort of a, a democratic perspective that we need at some level of, um, of anonymity in order to, to voice, um, criticism of the government, for instance. So I, I would eschew any, we need to verify every single user and make sure they're linked to their name and home address and employer. But I do think there is a need to stamp out inauthentic and impersonating uh, account. So we we actually have a problem on some of these social media platforms where dead people are resurrected and reincarnated. So they 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 might have been a, a real person. We can sometimes find their real obituary, but they've been reincarnated as these um these impersonators and they give that authenticity to the debate right? So we saw uh, journalists using some of these accounts in their reporting of man on the street says this, citizen opinion on this topic is blah. And they're actually quoting impersonated accounts. Um, so again, that, that's that's disrupting democratic debate. So where that's happening, it's it's actually a form of fraud. And I think platforms do have a massive responsibility to tackle that.
0: And how do you feel about the idea of people's social media accounts being linked to their actual name? And
3: There are a lot of problems um, with our approach. Um as Jen said, um, especially with regards to, um, dissidents, um, people who want to criticize the government. Um, I think, um, the good thing about internet, um, is that, I you know people can come together and sometimes anonymously, even though there are problems associated with it. But, um, I think, um, to, uh, link all social media accounts to a real person, um, is a bit of, uh, overreach. But, um, yeah, I, I, I find it interesting about this um, whole uh, re- resurrected business. I have um, I've, I've not heard of this before. What, what is, is the incentive for that exactly?
2: Because it gives the authenticity of their inclusion into a bait on, you know, uh, a policy, right? This is a real American from middle America. Um, and so they can use that photo and that sort of biography and persona to lend gravity and weight to the discussion.
3: I'm not sure how one would um, really be cracking down on that um, if there if we do accept that anonymous uh, anonymity on the internet um, then I'm not sure how to crack down on those kind of things then
0: Jenny in 2018 Australia signed an international declaration committing to transparency accountability and the protection of representative democracy in regards to the internet and following the horrific attacks in Christchurch in 2018, Australia passed a criminal code amendment that created new offences and liability, including imprisonment and huge fines for failing to take down violent content that was on social media platforms. But that legislation has been criticised by some for its ambiguity around how quickly providers have to take down the, the material uh, and the ability of the Australian e safety commissioner to issue a written notice to the service provider identifying content as abhorrent violent material without uh, observing any requirements of sort of procedural fairness what should and could be done from a policy standpoint in the future to tackle ambiguities like like that?
1: Well, I think to be fair to everybody, I think that's a really uh, difficult challenge because what counts as violence will always be a moving and debatable target. With that said, one answer I think is um, to be really clear about abstract criteria that counts as violent. So you're not going to ever be able to identify all the specific instances of the words that will count as violence. But you can specify a set of conditions for how you'll know violence and vi- violent speech when you see it. And you can then have protocols in place for what to do when that happens, um, who's notified, what are, the, what are the technical, practical, and uh, human labor ways in which that gets taken down, What are the consequences and for whom if it doesn't? So really clear guidelines about how we know violent speech and violent acts when we see it and what to do in a really clear way when we do
0: see it does some of the challenges that we see from governments in terms of introducing policy to tackle this sort of stuff reflect the challenges in government in terms of understanding the very fast and changing nature of the internet and social media and the um, and the uh, the secrecy from social media companies themselves around how their algorithms work
1: i think one thing that troubles um I think one thing that's troublesome is that we often talk about the internet as though it's a homogenous block. Or we even talk about social media as though it's one homogenous thing. But the internet is actually a lot of things. And social media platforms are a lot of things that take a lot of different forms owned by different companies with different interests and incentives, different architectures that play, different code, different algorithms, different regulations, different user bases. And so one of the challenges is we create policy and legislation as though we're dealing with a singular and universal target when, in fact, what we're dealing with are a lot of different organizations, corporations, uh, interest groups, technologies, etc.
2: Yeah, and, and it's important to note that even though there's this global implication, all of the companies we've been talking about thus far are based in the United States. And, and when we look at how, for instance, Congress has attempted to regulate and provide oversight over these industries, it's almost laughable. Any testimony, uh, involving Mark Zuckerberg and a senator is bound to end in tears. Um, and they don't understand the technology. Their questions make that very clear. One of them actually referenced AOL in a non-ironical <laughs> sense. And I thought he was going to ask Mark to help him fix his printer after that. But they didn't even understand the basis of Facebook's financial model. They they were clearly perplexed um, that, that, that they can make money if they don't charge for membership. That's how far behind we are in providing adequate regulation and oversight, starting with the only body that is constitutionally author- authorized to do so.
0: Pretty sobering stuff. In 2017, there was some research by, uh, by academics from Western Sydney University and UTS in Sydney, that found that only 10% of Australians believe people should have the freedom to insult or offend people on the basis of race, culture or religion. I mean, frankly, it's upsetting that even 10% think that's okay, but it does suggest there's some level of public support for greater action in that space. What could be done specifically to make social media a less noxious place for people from diverse racial, cultural and religious backgrounds?
3: I think, um, I guess we do need to be careful because, you know, on the one hand, um, racism and sexism is unacceptable. And on the other hand, there is also issues on you no know, freedom of speech. But I think one thing about social media we can think of and I think that's a one thing that government has talked about before is that um, we should treat online behaviour um, the same as offline behaviour so that if someone was to threaten you or harass you, um, for example based on your race or sex or whatever, then it should be, you know, um, it should be treated seriously by law enforcement agencies as if someone was doing that in um, offline settings as well. Um, well, I'm actually not sure if law enforcement agencies treat offline behavior seriously, but we should treat them very seriously and um, using, you know, appropriate um, um, enforcement and punishment um, for that kind of behavior.
1: The one thing that I think gets lost when we talk about freedom of expression is the fact that we are interdependent with each other. And, and what that means is that my individual expressions have an effect on you and your individual expressions have an effect on me. And so we're free to express ourselves to the extent that it doesn't start to impinge on others' freedoms. And when you think about things like racist and sexist and homophobic um, and ethnocentric, Language, which is espoused by individuals, random people on social media, but also, as Jen has pointed out, by public figures of authority on social media, that not only can be hurtful in the moment, but also creates a precedent and a norm in which those segments of society are actually endangered and marginalized and their opportunity structures are reduced. So allowing that freedom of expression to to be racist, sexist, etc., um directly and and indirectly impacts on those in marginalized categories with flow-on effects that are difficult to to pinpoint in the moment but have profound effects.
2: Yep, I agree. I, I think we're all interconnected. There was a great example of Microsoft launching its first AI experiment on Twitter called Tay. Um, And it had to be deactivated after sixteen, only 16 hours because it started spouting racist, sexually charged content, right, um, given the environment. So we know that that, that has a flow on effect and it can radicalize people and robots.
0: So we touched briefly on um, the particular issues in, facing women using social media. And I do just want to stay with that for a little bit more because almost every female friend I have has got – some social media horror stories to tell, whether it's sort of unsolicited dick pics. I can't believe I've said dick pics on policy. (laughs) I I would have. Whether it's unsolicited dick pics or whether it's (laughs) unwanted advances from people, you know, in their direct messages or whether it's people questioning their expertise on issues purely because of their sex. So what can we do to make social media less toxic specifically for women?
2: You know, what's interesting is, my comments, for whatever reason, don't um, get that kind of response. What happens is when I'm on traditional media, like television or radio, then people use social media to find me. It's an access point to me. So I either get nasty grams or, you know, e-missiles to my university account, or they find me on social media because that's a way into my life. Um, And I remember when I was on uh, I was asked to be on Q&A right after the Trump election and I was going to be, you know, well, you're an American, explain what just happened. And and I my decision point was do I have the emotional capacity mm. at this moment to take the abuse? Mm. And that is a part yeah. of my calculation when I decide to go on any news program. Am I prepared to deal with the crap today? that will eventuate from this public appearance. And for the Q&A experience, um, I actually had one of my friends take over my social media accounts and call and delete and block so that I didn't have to see it when I got home at 11.30 p.m. that night. And so I think everyone needs a friend like that (laughs) on social media. Uh, And I think preparation is key. So when I I would naively thought that as an academic, I would be based, you know, it would be based on my credentials and my mm. expertise and no, but the first comments are always about my hair. Oh. Um I get I get emails as far away from India about, you know, whether my makeup is just so. What? So I think being prepared for that, you know, is key to not taking it personally, but also having you have to have your armor up mm. and you have to have um, sort of boundaries.
3: Yes. Yeah, so. For women in, on social media, in public spaces, there appears to be that you need to have a really high resilience. Um, if we are focusing on resilience, it's almost focusing on what the victim should be doing rather than, you know, what, um, the perpetrator yep. should be doing. Um, so what, so I'm trying to think about what sort of things we can do or what sort of things that social media companies or government can do to ensure that perpetrators don't do that.
2: Yeah, especially for those of us who need to have a public profile as part of our work, right? We are, we are expected to impact uh, and contribute to community discussions. Yes. So in some ways, I have to be open and available yeah. to the general public. It's not a matter of just, just stop going online was yeah. usually the retort yeah. in the early days, right? Um, at least now there's a recognition that engagement is part of my job. Um, And thus, this has to be part of almost, you know, a a policy of, of, um, you know, employers, what sort of support can employers provide, say, for instance, if I'm targeted online, and I'm threatened, or they've called the dean and threatened my employment, Uh, you know, what sort of what sort of support can we rely on from an institution in helping us, not only, um, you know, relying on the platforms.
0: And do you think employers have caught up to that res- that responsibility?
2: I think they're more aware now. Um, there were several incidents of academics appearing on Fox News and immediately having an inbox full of, you know, um, threats and taunts and letters to the dean, and I've only gotten a couple of those. But um, uh, I think that... Um, Institutions are are more aware, and they probably have more more policies and and support for when that's available. Though I don't think that's quite an issue in Australia is perhaps in in the United States.
0: Jenny, what's your take on all of this?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's no no secret or no surprise that women get harassed on social media, um, and that and that when you know, as Jen talked about, when you make a public appearance of any sort, your social media then becomes the target or the access point with which to enact harassment. Um, I've not been the target very often, which is wonderful. Um, I hope that remains. I don't know. I don't know what it is. Maybe I have a mean look, but I've not really... What's your
2: Twitter angry. account again, Jenny? <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, but I've seen it. And I've seen it, you know, I've seen it come hard in terms of, you know, I know a lot of women who have received you know, the full gamut of, of unwanted advances to death threats, right? So um, none of which are pleasant uh, to varying degrees. And I do think that social media companies have a responsibility, as do policymakers, as do the institutions that support those who might get harassed. And I think those responses have to be distinct but coordinated, in the sense that your your employer can't obviously enact policy, but they can make um, they can input resources, social media managers, training seminars, um, uh, different sort of protections in place to support you. Policymakers can um, criminalize different forms of harassment if they are uh, inciting a violence. Social media companies can put stronger moderators in place that look for gendered harassment and things of that sort. So there could be um, and should be coordinated efforts because it's very clear that we're seeing this kind of harassment at scale against women and at at other intersections of oppression, women of color, people with disabilities, uh, those with uh, uh, non-binary gender identifications and sort of the intersections of, of all of these categories.
3: I think this issue is quite important because if it's not taken seriously, then what happens is that women will be more likely to vacate from the public space and public debate. And then what end up is all you hear are the views from men. And as if, you know, if the streets are not safe, then women will want to stay at home and you don't want to create that kind of environment. And it's also the same for, you know, different intersections as um, Jenny was mentioning before as well.
0: Okay, so we're coming to the end of our discussion today. It's been a fascinating discussion and we've covered a lot of ground. But before I let you go, can I get each of your thoughts on what you think would be the single most effective thing that government or policymakers could do to make these platforms Safer, more respectable, more responsible spaces. And perhaps, Je- Jenny, if I start with you on that.
1: Yeah, well, I think the most effective thing that they could start with is recognizing that we live in an unequal social structure. So before you get to policy enactments and before you get to technological adjustments and tech fixes, I think we need to understand that the world is unfair and unfair in very patterned ways that are, have been documented and will continue and continue to be documented across intersections of inequality. And I think starting with that assumption and starting with that base and then understanding how that plays out in uh, technologically mediated environments will be a much more productive task because there's a, a shared agreement that currently Things are harder for women and women of color, um, and those the, those uh, across um, intersectional uh, identities of disadvantage.
0: Let's turn to you, Jen. What what what, what do you, what's your take on that? What's your what do you think is the single most effective thing that government or policymakers could do to improve the the quality of these spaces?
2: Gosh, you know, as a scholar, um, I mostly admire the problem, uh, and I'm usually very reticent to give. <laughs> policy advice. Um, but, but I would say what I would like to say, I'm not sure like to see, I'm not sure if this would be the most effective, but I think it would be a step in the right direction is to see politicians abiding by these norms. I would like to see politicians pulling up their colleagues who don't abide by these norms. I would like to see actual sanctions um, of behavior. Uh, when these lines are transgressed, because these are supposed to be role models. These are supposed to be leaders. Um, and I do think people feed upon their behavior and their example as license to act accordingly. The world would be a better place if Donald Trump wasn't allowed to be on Twitter, for instance. Um, and so I think before policymakers point the finger at platforms, they need to take a good hard look at themselves.
0: Well, I don't know if Donald Trump is a listener to policy. <laughs> blood. He may well be, but- But of course, Twitter have been taking some action against Donald Trump recently, haven't they?
2: Yes, but only around misinformation that would literally get people killed. Uh, So Facebook has the same policy. They will only take down content if there's an imminent threat of harm, as in people are advocating for drinking disinfectants and that sort of thing. Um, But it has taken five years for this needle to move and only in light of a pandemic it should have happened earlier.
0: I should say as well, if Donald Trump is a listener to Policy Forum Pod, perhaps he needs to listen a little bit closer. I'm sure he would have picked up some stuff along the way. So, Yuen, know, let me turn to you for the for the last word. What What's your, your single piece of advice about how to improve these spaces?
3: I think um, the government just needs to take this uh, more seriously and not think of this thing just another tech issue or internet issue. You know, as you were saying that um, a lot of um, – um, politicians, they are perhaps from a different era, <laughs> and they perhaps do not understand the challenges associated with social media. So I think um, government needs to take a, um, it more seriously and also um, listening to perhaps you know listen to more young people to see what their habits are, what their concerns are as
0: well. All good advice. Well, this has been a really fascinating discussion. So thank you so much, Jen, Jenny, and Yun. It's been great having you on the podcast.
2: Thank you. Thank, thank you. you.
0: Listeners, what did you make of today's discussion? We want to hear from you. You can reach us on Twitter, where we're Apps Policy Forum, that's APPS Policy Forum, or shoot us a good old-fashioned email, podcast at policyforum.net. We also want to know what you'd like us to talk about next, so if you've got any ideas, Please don't be shy to share them. And the best way to do that is, of course, to join our pod squad on Facebook. You can find our presenters, other listeners, and even some of our panelists there. And on top of that, you get exclusive early access to our Ask Policy Forum series. That's the podcast where you get to ask all the questions, and we're recording another episode very soon. We hope that you've enjoyed today's episode, and if you have, we'd love you to subscribe to us. You can find us on Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favourite series from. And while you're there, you might even want to leave us a review. Your support is always greatly appreciated. We'll be back with another episode of Policy Forum Pod next week, but until then, from me, Martin Pierce. cheerio for now.